Aloha, this is Holly Allgood. We are broadcasting from Javi in North Kohala, Hawaii, here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM. I'm very excited that we have a special guest today. Her name is Carol McMillan, and she has been an anthropologist, a teacher, a singer, a poet, a writer, and she's had quite an extraordinary life, and you are going to have the pleasure of hearing some of her life stories today. Again, this is Holly Allgood. You're listening to Tutu's Talk Story. Carol, welcome. Oh, aloha and mahalo. It's wonderful to be here. So tell us where your story started. Oh, my goodness. My story started, well, I suppose at birth. (laughs) Um, I was born in Berkeley, California, and moved back and forth between the coasts for a while. Um, My father was a research chemist, and he worked for Shell. um, So did that have you traveling around a lot as a child? It did, but mostly because um, he loved to travel. And we camped. When we were in California, we camped in the Sierras many, many weekends. We drove back and forth across country. My grandparents were in the Midwest, and so we went out there a lot. And I was just thinking about um, what what was important to me in my life that you had mentioned, you know, that I might think about today. And I realized one of the things that I really appreciate from my father was the word explore. We grew up that that was like the most exciting thing to do. And I've thought about the fact that it's it's kind of missing in a lot of people's lives today, just the idea of exploration, but it was just huge in mine. Well, and it sounds like you had a deep connection to the outdoors as well if you were doing all these travel expeditions as camping trips. True. It's, it's where I feel safe and where I feel at home. Um, I have a friend who... Um, lived in Seattle for a while, and she'd take me to Seattle, and going through a big city, and especially at night, it's just like, ee to me. But boy, put me in the woods in the middle of the night in the dark, and it's like, wraps itself around me, and I say, yes, I'm home. It's <laughs> all what we grow up with, isn't it? It is. So, and, and Berkeley at the time when you were raised there, was that, that was a village, probably. It was, compared to what it is now. Um, I just have finished, and haven't set it off, um, my memoir of Berkeley from 1966 to 1972. So I was in the San Francisco Bay Area during all the flower children and the everything. Yes. <laughs> and it was extremely exciting, which is, um, I've never heard it told the mm-hmm. way I experienced it, mm-hmm. but um, that's really why I wanted to write my memoir. Well, I'm sure we're all... What is the title of your memoir? Well, the working title right now is Seeds of the Flower Children. Uh huh. <laughs> but I'm not sure if I was totally legitimate flower child. I was a little bit older. Uh-huh. And it certainly was my awakening, my becoming woke, if I could use the term today. Yes. Um, had everything to do with what happened from um, a, a little suburban white girl that had been very isolated in many ways, exposed to lots of things like nature and um, just lots of interesting things. But in terms of cultural diversity, in terms of everything else, I was extremely whatever. So what (laughs) what type of schooling did you have as a young girl? Actually, the Orinda School, which is just right the other side of the Berkeley Hills, 
um, it was a, started as a bedroom community and mainly to have good schools for the kids. And I must say, it was unbelievable. I mean, what I got in in elementary school was um, Glorietta School, bless his heart, was extremely progressive. <laughs> and this was a public school? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in an affluent area. Yes, not mm-hmm. nearly as, well, it wasn't that affluent then. Mm-hmm. It's become a ridiculous, snobby little community now. But, right, um, right. It had cow pastures and ranches and hills. And did you, were you in the public schools there for all of your youth? There or in New York, uh, back and forth between New York and California. Well, tell us about that. How did you get to New York? Well, my father was transferred there, and um, we went twice. We moved twice back and forth. But um, So that must have been hard on you. As a, How old were you? First time I was, we lived in Connecticut, in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, between the ages of 10 and 12, and nobody um, who had a per, you know a professional parent went to public schools and we never even thought of it Greenwich is old money old everything and so that was the first time I was really introduced to any kind of diversity because the, the my friends at the public school were um, Lisa Lotto Gameltoff who just moved from Sweden and um, Harriet Holmeyer who just moved from England and um, Oh, I forget her name, but she was Scottish, and she would dress in a kilt, and she just moved from Scotland. So that was really, really good. But the schools were terrible. The education was just awful. Even at the age of 10, I recognized so many errors that my teacher would say. And at a 10-year-old, you know, like, what do you say when <laughs> when she'd say wrong things? Oh, isn't that something? So these were the public schools in Connecticut or New York? Connecticut, yeah. 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 And then you went back to California. Back to California to Orinda again and then mm-hmm. back to New York for my last three years of high school. And that was on Long Island, and it was much better. The schools were excellent. And, on um, Long Island? Mm-hmm. So Long it's Island. Long. Really? I learned how to have a good friend, and she taught me how to say dog. I say, <laughs> you walk your dog, and I can say dog perfectly. <laughs> yes, but that's my only word. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> All right. So what happened to you after? So you graduated high school in Long Island? I did. And then I split the difference between the coast and went to the University of Colorado, mainly because I wanted to ride horses and be in the mountains and ski. So for the first two years, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I skied and rode horses and played. But then I found anthropology and man, it just grabbed me. So where, where you, were you grabbed by anthropology? Ethnolinguistics. And this is a true story. Mm-hmm. It was a two-credit class, and it fit into my ski schedule. <laughs> it fulfilled the requirement, and I thought, oh, this is perfect, because I skied two days a week, so I would only take classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I had no idea what it was, but I took this little course absolutely fascinating and so it was more like a seminar there were only like 10 of us in it and Dorothy Kashubi I'll never forget her who taught the course (gasps) just fascinating so tell our listeners what the heck is ethnolinguistics it's the study of language in different cultures and until that time I had no idea that you can tell so much about the social structure of a culture about everything like that from the language And you don't have to speak it. You just, like in Hawaiian, this is old knowledge. This is from my ethnolinguistics class a zillion years ago. But there's only so many um, um, 
kinship systems. And Hawaii has one of the most universal that all, um, everybody of one generation is your auntie or, you know, and so it's generational. And, and you can look at the language and see that they use the same word for that in Hawaiian. And so recognizing what they use the same words for will tell you how they relate to those people. And there's so much like that that you can get out of a language. Well, I hear your excitement about the ethnolinguistics. Where did that lead you? Well, it led me into anthropology, which um, for my junior and senior year, I decided to major in it. And you can always make money in anthropology being a shovel bum in archaeology things. So I went both summers of my junior and senior year down to Mesa Verde National Park because the University of Colorado had a crew down there. And so I worked in archaeology for a couple of summers, which was fascinating. And but tell us what a shovel bum does. A <laughs> shovel bum digs. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, I have a poem. <laughs> it's a really bad poem, but it's short. I'm an archaeologist praised by society. I've gone to school for many years to earn a fine degree, while my brother is a convict, thought evil by all men. While I've been working hard in school, he's been living in the pen. Now we both work for the government with our shovels and our picks, and when I stop to think, I see I'm really in a fix. The result of all the years that I've studied on my bench is that he must call his hole a ditch, but I call mine a trench. <laughs> That's great. I love it. That's what I did when I was, I mean, digging. You just dig for eight hours a day. And did you uh, find anything? Oh, yes. It's just. So what kinds of things did you find? Um, well, actually, the most exciting find was not in Mesa Verde, but it was um, my senior year. Marie Warmington, who was a very famous southwestern archaeologist at the time, which was amazing that she was a woman and that much older than me because archaeology is the most chauvinistic field that one would ever not want to go into. But she came up to the university and she said, there's a, um, a site out on the plains that I want... I have found extinct buffalo bones, that bison bones, and some charcoal, but we need to, to get a grant to dig it. I need to um, prove that it's a human habitation site, and so we need something that would prove that. And I can't pay anybody, but if there's a crew that's willing to come, I feed steak dinners and we'll have fun. So I went out with her for the weekend, and in... Um, the plains, it's, you dig totally differently. You dig literally with, a, with a, a, a little trowel and a paintbrush because it's so, you're, you're looking at 11,000-year-old, and so you're, you're just barely scraping anyway. Um, and so with the trowels, we sharpened our trowels all the time to just make sure we were being very clean in our little things. And the guy working in the grid right next to me all of a sudden says, oh, my gosh, no, and he's screaming. And I thought, oh, he sharpened his trowel and he's cut his thumb off. That was my image. And so I finally turned to look, and he was, he was just cleaning out the end of what turned out to be a, a Clovis point which was a projectile point, an arrowhead, like, well, actually a spearhead, that it was, I mean, no one had seen that point for 10,000 years. And at just that moment of the reality of the fact that the people were here and they hunted those buffalo, and that it was 10,000 years ago, it was just And then incredible. you had the proof that there were people there. That was the proof. Yeah. That was the proof. Yep. Isn't it something? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've done a lot of digging. <laughs> I have, but it was never my, I mean, those are, are great, but 
as I said, archaeology is the most chauvinistic field. I don't want to discourage women from going into it, but it well, keeps being the same. You, can you tell us some of your experiences that caused you to say that? Oh, um, it was never ending. I mean, it was the, the guys just dragged on you all the time. And, oh, you want to be, okay, um, you want to to be an archaeologist? Okay, um, riding out to the dig, you get to ride in the back of the truck when it's raining. And, you know, women in the back. And, oh, you drag the field kits, which are really heavy. And just constant, absolutely constant. So be really being treated differently. Totally differently. Mm. It was just... Uh, Actually, my sister's three years older, and she went to Stanford, and she was told that, well, it was true, no women were allowed in the field mm -hmm. when she was mm -hmm. going to school just mm -hmm. three years before me. So hopefully it has changed. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I the last time I've had anything to do with archaeology, it sounded like it was pretty much the same. So let me ask you this. So then you graduated from college. This was all, these digs were while you were in college. Yes. And you were still enthusiastic. What happened next? Oh, what happened next? Okay, right after I graduated. Oh, dear, this is in my memoir, but I've never told it out loud before. <laughs> I, um, I, My sister, three years older, had done what all the women did at that time. She got her degree, I mean, if you went to college, but upon graduation, she got married, nice husband, settled down, being a good wife. And I remember the day that I was um, doing breakfast dishes in Colorado, looking out at the flat irons, which are the big rocks that go up behind the city of Boulder. And I realized I'm about to graduate and I'm not getting married. I wonder what I should do. <laughs> and so there was on the radio at that exact moment came a, a voice saying that they were um, having this huge crash program for the Peace Corps for Micronesia and they wanted 10 thousand volunteers. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, why not? That sounds like a good anthropological thing to do. So I signed up and I went into Peace Corps training. And um, you'll have to buy my book for the rest of the story. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Now we when can't sell out. on public radio here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, you don't have to buy it. You can get it out of the library. <laughs> it, it, you're safe. It's not out yet. Yeah. Um, but um, well, I'd no, like to go back. Story. I'd like to go back a step, which I'm sure is a long story too. But uh, it sounds like you were always very savvy about education. Any ten-year-old who can call out their teacher was what caused that? Do you think that was how you were raised? Do you think that was innate in you? Uh, what? How? How is it that you went to college and maybe somebody else in your class didn't? Um. My father got his Ph.D. from Stanford at 23, okay. and so <laughs> that, that might explain it. But it was never a question, you know, like I was going to college. And it's interesting because, like they say often, my sister, the older one, got the brunt of my parents' expectations. My sister was a straight-A student. She bit her fingernails to the quick, worrying about getting her grades and everything. And my parents didn't care, <laughs> me with you and it was wonderful because I was perfectly happy to get B's I got A's and, and B's but you know there was no pressure and of course my my sister internalized something that it, obviously my parents didn't mean to put on her but um, but it sounds like really it was the family expectation absolutely. that you would go to college it wasn't even a question no. if you would continue your education no. or not and a really sad thing is my mom um, 
only went to one year of college. She was from the Midwest. And um, her sister ended up running away from home at 16. She was lesbian, and you can imagine at that time what that meant to her. Anyway, she ran away from home at 16. She went on to Michigan and got her PhD in psychology and taught at the University of Michigan for her whole life um, and had a really good, happy life, um, found a wonderful woman that she was with for her whole life. But my, um, my mom considered herself stupid. I mean, she really did. And my father was very charismatic. He was, you know, he was the smart impression, you know, just everything. And so she did the wife of the 50s. And one of my heartbreaks in life is that she didn't let people see how intelligent she was. She hid it. And she even told me I should be hiding mine. She said, you'll, you'll never get a man. No man will marry you. If they if know how smart that you are. If, mm-hmm. Yep. Well, thank goodness times have changed, right? <laughs> Somewhat. 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 <laughs> well, that's fascinating. So um, did, she, did you think she had a good life? My mother or my aunt? Your mother. My, my mother. Um, she had an all right life, but mm-hmm. no. Um, she got dementia. My, my sister was, well, she had all the pressures and she had everything, but she was, she was the little girl. And I was supposed to be a boy. I wasn't a boy. My mother wouldn't have any more children. And so my whole life, I mean, I've had therapy for this, but I was born wrong. And um, and so my sister really was, and it's the truth, and I'm not whining about it, but she was the favored one, and she was the little princess, and she was all those things, and I was the other. And my mother and I had issues all the time I was growing up. But in the end, she got Alzheimer's and dementia, and when my dad died, I brought her up. They were living in California, and my sister was living in Oregon. And when my dad got very ill, my sister brought him up to Oregon where she was. And my mother had broken her hip, and I brought her up to where I was in eastern Washington. And for six and a half, she didn't live with me, but I lived in a tiny town, and she lived in a a friend, actually, is home there who started a a senior care facility. But... um, for six and a half years, I was her only person, and we got so close. It was one of the just most intimate times was in her late-stage Alzheimer's, and it was so healing for me. It kind of ruined my life, but it was really healing. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it's. we definitely relate to our parents differently at different times in our lives. We do. And, and it sounds like you had a full circle healing with yours. I did, and I really want to put in a plug for um, counseling. I mean, I really did go to many years of, of different kinds of therapy. And by the time my mother was an old woman with Alzheimer's, I totally saw her as as the old woman who did the best she could and you know raised me as best she knew how. And I could just love her purely mm-hmm. and... That was just a real gift. So, so what was it like being trained to be in the Peace Corps? <laughs> no, I, I really. <laughs> I always wanted to know about I, that. It, it was a special program. It actually, um, it was. It's the Peace Corps is really, really different now. But it was not anthropologically correct. It was so not anthropologically correct. They were out to make capitalists, and actually. 
um, they were out to try to annex the entire Pacific. And I've tried to Google this, and I did hear it on the radio years later that they'd proposed before Congress to annex, I don't know which, I think it was the Marianne's, but anyway, to Hawaii, or the Marshall, anyway, whichever group of, of Micronesia. And the rest of Micronesia was going to be its own state called Pacifica. But I can't find that again. But I did hear it on the radio, and it was so obvious that's what they were doing. 10,000 volunteers to just Micronesia. I mean, it was crazy. So did you wind up going to Micronesia? No, I did not. We had a, a, a not very sweet parting of ways between me and the Peace Corps. Okay. So it. So you never wound up going? Ne- you decided but, it was better. Wakabas and Chuk. <laughs> I learned the truckies language very well, which oh is a waste. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that something? So what did you do after you decided the Peace Corps Af- weren't for you? After I, I decided, I went back to the Bay Area, and I lived in Sausalito, and that was during those years of, of the flower children, and it was wonderful. I mean, I got to see live Janis Joplin and everybody, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, the whole slew of all of those fabulous musicians and part of the whole change. And, um, and I got a job at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco as payroll secretary. I could have had a job as an anthropologist at the University of California in Berkeley um, at their museum, but it was part-time and it wasn't much money. And I thought, oh, what the heck? So I took San Francisco. And um, they didn't have an anthropology department at the museum, but they had an entomology department, which was um, insects, bugs. And Ed Ross was very interesting. He would go for six months to a year around the world collecting his Embioptera, which were his kind of insect he studied. And um, he was about to go. And so I ended up eating lunch in that department a lot. And he was about to go to Africa. And before he was going to go, like two weeks, he said one day, my cook broke his leg. Are you interested in coming? And I said, surely you jest. <laughs> so I borrowed the money from my parents to, um, to get there, to fly there. And there was just um, Ed Ross and his assistant, and then Ed's daughter, who had become sort of a hippie flower child, and she was supposed to be reconciling with her dad on this trip, but that's another very long story. But we spent four months camping across the middle of nowhere, starting at Cape Town and then going through Namibia and Botswana and Zambia and Tanzania and Kenya. And and were you really the cook? I was really the cook. <laughs> and what did you cook? Oh, my gosh. Um, lots of, no refrigeration, of course. So we'd stop in these little teeny tiny towns, and then we're just in the outback all the rest of the time. And uh, lots of pasta and rice and things like that with various tinned things to put on top of them. But um, cabbage was the mainstay as a vegetable, and I pickled onions and cheese, and it was, it was bare bones. <laughs> so tell us about the trip. What do you remember the most? Oh, every single, um, every day was an adventure. It really was. You couldn't possibly do the trip now for the political reasons. You couldn't cross the borders or do things like that. But, um, oh, charged by elephants, um, (laughs) ran into what they were calling it, depending on whose side you were on. It was either a terrorist or a freedom fighter. But we were going on this one little tiny road. And as we were just starting on it, this, this truck came by with an open back and all these men with, you know, their rifles and everything, and they stopped, and they said, um, 
we hear there's a terrorist in the activity, because at the time Rhodesia was, was becoming um, Zimbabwe, right? <laughs> anyway, and so there were, um, Namibia was sending freedom fighters um, to help with this, and we were going exactly on that route. And so, he's, so this was a, the Botswana government who was saying... Did, um, did you have local guides? No. So you were just <laughs> we were, like, give us the picture. Were you in a truck or a oh, it's jeep? Oh, an unbelievable a... truck. Um, mm -hmm. It was Ross designed it and um, designed the truck. Yes, mm -hmm. and he would have it shipped to wherever he was going to have his next expedition. But mm -hmm. it was um, just it was a masterpiece. And the top of it was an aluminum flat box, and it lifted up and slide it and legs came down and that would be an awning that you would have where and mm -hmm. one of the doors came off and that was the table that I used as cook but up on top you'd pull two ropes and there's a tent on the top of the truck that would unfold like a Conestoga wagon and oh that's where goodness. we slept and it was wonderful <laughs> oh my goodness and now what kind of insects was he collecting Embiopterra. And what They're are Embiopterra? Everywhere around the world, but nobody ever sees them. They're, they look kind of like a termite or an ant, but they're long. And they live in the, the duff underneath trees. Um, and they spin. Their, their front legs have spinnerets on them, and they spin silk like a spider does. And they make tunnels that they line with silk. And, uh, yeah, it was really <laughs> interesting. So would you collect... I didn't do any collecting. But I mean, with oh. the group, is that what they were? Were they collecting? Yes, that was their point, yes, yeah. was to collect them. So what would they do with them? Pickle them. Pickle <laughs> we had, them? We had boxes and boxes of um, of little vials that you'd put different ones in. And he collected all kinds of other insects, too. Mm -hmm. um, so th And then those would be somehow packaged into the truck? Yes, yes, yes. There were storage spaces all through the truck. Oh, my gosh. So that sounds like quite the adventure, mm -hmm. quite the exploration. It was. It was. Yeah, um, yeah there was. Um, we got lost at one point when we were um, coming to um, toward Victoria Falls. We thought that there was this little oil road on the map, and it wasn't on the map. I mean, it wasn't there. And we started trying to follow it. But then we didn't know if we were on a game trail anymore or whatever. And we knew we would run out of um, gas and whatever if we didn't get there. There was we passed a point, and um, and so we all really quietly deciding whether we were going to die out there or not. We had no firearms because it would have been too hard to cross borders with firearms. And um, <laughs> all of a sudden, there were zebras outside the window, and then there were more zebras, and then there were more zebras. And we were in the middle of a zebra migration. And oh, my gosh. And it was gosh. unbelievable. So we went for a long time with those, and then we were parted company from them. And then all of a sudden it was news, um, wildebeest, and it was the same thing. Then we were in the middle of the wildebeest migration. It was just absolutely magical. Mm. And then eventually we started to see tire tracks, and we knew that we were actually on a road. <laughs> and near civilization, yeah. and mm -hmm. you're here to tell the story. That's right. Did you go to Victoria Falls? Oh, absolutely. And at that time, there was nothing. I mean, there was absolutely nothing except people flew in to a casino there. But it was truly there the was middle There was a casino at There was Victoria a casino Falls? after being three months by then of being out in absolutely the middle of nowhere. All of a sudden, we're... <laughs> 
at this casino. That, and about what year was this? That was 66. 66. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you can, I don't know if you still can, but I think you maybe still can, walk along. Victoria Falls falls into this chasm and makes this total right turn immediately. And so you can walk along the opposite side of the falls for a mile because the falls are a mile wide. And then periodically there are these little points that go out. And I went in the morning at dawn before anybody was there. Nobody was anywhere. Not that there were a lot of tourists or anything like that. And I'm walking along there, and I go out on one of the points. And in Hawaii, people will appreciate this because people have seen this in Hawaii, but I'd never seen it before. So I'm standing on a point in the midst of the falls, and this rainbow, full circle, all Mm. the way around me Mm. of this full circle rainbow. Mm. And all I could think is the people who are native to this area must truly think this is the center of Earth. This is the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Just beautiful. Did you go into the casino? Yes, and I was so broke. I had absolutely no money. I was in debt to my parents for the trip. And we walked in, and of course there were people there, and those in tuxedos and satin gowns and all this stuff. And so at the roulette table, I stopped and just kind of stood beside this guy, and his wife was on the other side in her long satin gown. And he was stacking these chips, and he would put them out, and then he'd lose, and then he'd put them out, and then he'd lose. And so I watched for a while, and then I saw that stacks were $1,000 chips. And it was my, it was, I don't know if this is fair for the radio. Let me see how I can say this right. But it's the first time I considered I could sell him a kiss for one chip. (laughs) (laughs) But then his wife was on the other side, so I decided I better not try that. (laughs) Oh, isn't that something? So were there a lot of people in this casino? There were. There was. I, I was so. That was. And when I talk about the fact that, that the journey that I write about in my book is becoming aware of the rest of the world, and this is there's just nothing I can I can wish upon people of of other generations is that they explore because what you learn. At one point, we were on a, on a very small road, and we came down and. There was a wooden platform by a little tiny stream, and you drove the truck onto the stream on the platform. And there was there were wires, big cables that went by this, and the guy got on the cable, and with his bare feet, he pulled the cable and walked it, walking our truck to move the, the platform across the river. And when I was in the casino with this man with his $1,000 chips, I was thought of that guy, and I thought of this is how one person makes a living in his life, and then there's this man and the incredible inequity of the world, just and that really really changed my life. I mean, it really did. I had to go back, and and I didn't want to be an anthropologist anymore. By the time I went home, I wanted to do something because then I realized the inequities in our own society, and so I went back and got accepted into a master's program at the University of California, and for inner city teaching, and I taught in Oakland for three years, and. And I learned as much from my, I learned more from my students, my fourth grade students, than they ever learned from me. <laughs> well, that's that's a huge leap going from a cook and an African exploration to coming back and becoming fourth grade teacher. We're going to hear more about this after a short station break and public service announcement. You're listening to KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. This is Holly Allgood, and today's guest is Carol McMillan. 
Hawaii Diaper Bank is accepting diapers, open and unopened packs, and wipes to help Hawaii Island families meet their keiki's basic needs. They also accept new and gently used blankets, books, clothing, and diaper bags, and new hygiene products, pacifiers, and other teething items. They also accept toys for children up to age five. You can make a donation at St. Augustine's Episcopal Church Thrift Store in Kapa'au. Drop-off days and times are Wednesday from 12 to 3 and Thursday from 4 to 6. You can also drop off your donations at Nakahara Store. For more information, visit hawaiidiaperbank.org. Woman, sister, do you hear me? You are the giver of life, your blood is This is Isla Allgood of Women's Voices. Tune in on Monday and Wednesday from 4 till 6 p.m. To listen to women from around the world, around Hawaii, songs with positive and empowering messages on KNKRLP 96.1 FM, Monday and Wednesday, 4 to 6 p.m. Hello, this is Holly Allgood. You're listening to KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm here in Havi, Hawaii, and I'm talking with Carol McMillan today. And for those of you who may have been listening earlier, Carol has been an anthropologist. She is has also been a teacher. She's an artist, a writer, a singer. And if you have any questions for her or comments, you can call us at 884-KNKR. That's area code 808-884-5657. And I do want to remind everyone that the opinions, beliefs, and views of the host and the guests do not necessarily reflect those of KNKR or their affiliates. Okay, Carol, back to you. We last were hearing about you touring Africa, and then you came back and decided that you wanted to be more involved in social justice and started teaching fourth grade in Oakland. What was that like? Oh, it was incredible. Um, I I written about um, the. I realized that every memory I have is when one of my children taught me something. Mm-hmm. Every memory, and they mm-hmm. were so. I mean, it, it was inner city, and they all had unique lives, <laughs> to say the least. Really different from my life growing up. But one of my favorite stories is. Um, there were two girls in the class who were cousins, and um, Lisa and Cece Barnes, and I hope they don't mind me mentioning them. It's a good story. <laughs> um, and Cece was tiny for the fourth grade. She was so short. She was this little tiny thing. And one day there was um, a scuffle. I was out on playground duty, and well, it wasn't a scuffle. It was a fight of sixth grade boys that were large, and um, I was out there, I'm on yard duty, I'm supposed to be doing something, and I'm kind of like, "Ah." so of course I yell at them to stop, and they ignored me, and finally this large male teacher shows up, and that ended it. But anyway, as I'm walking away, Cece comes up to me, and she says, Ms. McMillan, you're afraid of fighting, aren't you? And I said, well, Cece, I didn't really grow up seeing a lot of it, and so, yeah, maybe I am kind of afraid. And she said, well, I'm going to tell you what my big brother told me. 
he say, Cece, you little, don't ever try to win. You're not going to win, but you just hurt them, and then they won't mess with you no more. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've thought of that. <laughs> Later when I was teaching at the college, and I'd be in a staff meeting, and, and things would be going on, and all of a sudden I thought, okay, you're not going to win this one, Carol, but just hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cece, if you're out there, thank you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> what else? Can you think of anything else? Oh, um, Oh, what what what's another good one from? Or you can just tell us what it was like uh, being in well, the inner city. Well, being the white person, it mm -hmm. was the first time, and mm -hmm. then I spent most of my adult life being the only white person mm -hmm. in people of color. Mm -hmm. And um, to say I loved it is is I I love it. I mm -hmm. just love it. The mm -hmm. humor in um, well, black humor and native humor, and later in life it was with the. Colville tribes, and so it was Native American Indian humor. Um, they're different. They're very different. But they're so funny. <laughs> and, and what I think about, if I can, if I can make an, I am white, if I can make an anti-white statement, we take ourselves so doggone seriously in general. And one of the things I love about, and this is obviously a generalization and it differs, but people of color have much more laid-back senses of humor, and they often find their own mistakes funny, which I find some of my, my favorite things that will get me laughing is something incredibly stupid I did in my life. And I'll think back on it, and it just cracks me up. <laughs> and I love a culture that does that. I just absolutely love it. And yet not self-effacing, but just really having fun with life. Absolutely, with, mm -hmm. with just... just um, much lighter, you know, just life is just there and you live it and you do the best you can. Um, so did you teach, how long did you teach fourth grade in Oakland? I taught for three years and um, and at the end of that time, I was offered a job teaching um, in the demonstration school in Oakland, which was really incredible. And that's thanks to the University of California. Oh my goodness, their teaching program was, so they wanted us to be student-centered. And so they taught us student-centered and they made us born-again teachers. And it really was all about, and totally, I mean, to use the word progressive, I don't know what else to use, but he taught us methods that were not in the school system at that time. So, um, for, again, for our listeners who may not know what student-centered means, can you explain a little bit more oh, detail? Well, the old image, which mostly is gone now, thank heaven, of putting schools in, I mean, children in rows and desks and teaching everybody the same lesson and, um, you know, lecturing and testing and all of that, which still goes on at universities and is just as bad at universities as it is in the fourth grade. <laughs> but um, it, it, so, um, you know, have um, activity centers and um, just individualized learning a lot more that you really tried to meet a student where they were and you gave them successes. You didn't give them this, you know, all are supposed to meet this same test standard at that same time. You found where they were and you tried to bring things to them so that they would succeed. And one of the things that the, I, I, my master's that I got at, at Cal was in elementary education 
in um, math curriculum. And I really figured out great ways to teach math. Uh, Environment-centered, that we just did fun things that measure circumferences by going out and wrapping strips of paper around things and then making charts out of them and things like that. So I really knew how to teach math. I didn't know how to teach reading. But, but the university said, make them love reading. That's what you can do. And I had many fourth graders that were virtually non-readers. And so I did everything. And one of the things that was the hardest, but I was told to try it, was um, I read to them a lot. And that worked. But also that there would be a time when everybody read and they could read whatever they wanted as long as it was approved by me, but I was very liberal. Um, but they just had to read. For 15 minutes, we'd read. And I had to sit at my desk and read something that was wonderful, that was a novel, that was fun, that was just, and they had to see me loving reading. And that year, by the standard, I hate standardized tests, but by the standardized test, my kids' grade performance was up. I forget, two and a half or three grade levels because they taught themselves how to read because they learned to love it. Well, they say that's probably one of the most important things in terms of learning, right? Learning yes. how to read. Oh, totally. And and it worries me that the love of reading and the love of books is, you know, like, <laughs> anyway, I won't get into that. I don't want it to diminish. So did you go to the demonstration school? No, and this is like, mm, I married Peter Foy, and he had gotten, he just finished his PhD in industrial relations at Berkeley, and he was, we'd been living together by then, and he was moving to Oregon. He was offered a job at the University of Oregon. So I will never forget, um, we sat down on the steps of the building one day, and he said, well, do you want to come with me? And we had this discussion, well, if I do, and I'm giving this up, maybe we should get married. And so it was like that was that was our proposal to each other. So I did, and I went with him. And lo and behold, three years later, we divorced. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. So then what happened after you divorced? Well, we lived for two years in, in Eugene in Oregon, and that was very fascinating. I met my dear friend Alice, who was the best friend of my entire life, and we had a wonderful time sort of doing antique business for a while. And then Peter got a job full-time at State University of New York at Buffalo. And so we moved to Buffalo. And I almost didn't go with him, but we had that classic discussion of, oh, you're right, Carol. I'm so sorry. I'll be better. (laughs) And I went. And Peter became a very famous books published everything in industrial relations and that's what happened we went back there and he became an important person capital i capital p and i'm sorry peter i'm saying bad things about you but they're true actually he passed away so so <laughs> you can't hear those so you left buffalo a state since i was there i decided to go back and get my phd so I went back. Actually, I first decided I was going to go. I'm good with my hands, and I was going to be a surgeon. And so I went to take a year of pre-med. And so I took chemistry, physics, and calculus, which was the hardest thing I ever did in my entire life, thinking I was older so I could do this. Um, but holy mackerel did I fight for that year. But it, Buffalo has a huge medical school. 
And so everybody in the pre-med was trying to get into medical school. And I didn't like the people. I didn't like them. They were competitive. They didn't care about finding the real truth. They just wanted grades. They cheated to get grades. And I thought, I don't want to be with these people. And then I found anthropology again. And I thought, why not? So I went back to anthropology and decided I'd get my PhD. And by an odd little quirk, I was thinking of cultural because that's what really interested me. But I already had a master's from Berkeley and in the PhD program for Buffalo, you had to get another master's on your way. Well, you had to get a master's on your way. And so I was arguing with them. I have one. I don't want another master's. Anyway, I was really ticked um, that I had to do this. And so this woman who worked in genetics, in primate genetics, came up to me and she says, I have a quick and easy little master's for you. Just do this analysis for me of genetic distances between matrilineages on these monkeys in Cayo Santiago, which I know sounds like Greek. <laughs> but... Anyway, I did, and when I found out, well, that's hard to explain, but the dominant male could not be doing all the mating like everybody thought that they did and have the genetics come out the way they were. The patterns weren't right. So then I got interested in that, and so for my dissertation, I went down to this island off Puerto Rico where this monkey colony is that is a research colony for behavioral research, and I watched monkeys for seven months of my life. I became part of the rhesus monkey colony. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And it, this was doing your doctoral dissertation? Yes. So what is the title of your dissertation? <laughs> um, Male age, rank, and mating success on Cayo <laughs> Santiago. So the people would tease me that I had a Playboy article that would come out of my dissertation for sure. Uh-huh. But what I found out was that, lo and behold, it's, the dominant male does not do the majority of the mating at all. So that's what everyone thought, but that everyone there's a dominant that. male in a Reese's monkey they're, colony they're, and that they would be procreating more than any of the other males. But what actually was happening? What actually has happened is that, okay, how do I make this not (laughs) (laughs) R-rated? What actually was happening is males totally knew, and there were were big groups of monkeys. There were like 40 to 80 individuals in these groups. And males knew their dominance rank because a dominant male can break up the mating of a less lower-ranking male, and that's why everybody thinks the dominant males. But... Luckily, I just made a whole lot. I had three people that were working for me collecting data for those seven months. And um, and I had a whole lot of variables that I didn't know that I would use. But one of them was um, where they were, where we were, if we were watching a mating. And it would, and there places that were dense cover and places that were exposed. And I actually rated those on a one to 10 scale of how visible it was. And so low ranking males, knew their dominance rank, and so they basically had quickies in the bushes. <laughs> so, and, right, not visible. And the, the higher-ranking males would be out in the open for long times. And, mm-hmm. um, and so um, it, so this little pipsqueak graduate student went back, and I was making these, these um, reading these papers at the um, oh, American Association of Physical Anthropology and biology and all these different meetings and I'll never forget okay this is bad but it's the truth so I guess I can say it David Glenn Smith who was a big important muckety muck at the University of California Davis got up absolutely purple and screaming at me literally purple screaming at me about how wrong I was and 
years, couple of years later, after I was really careful in my dissertation and analysis and the statistics, and it was really tight, he came up to me. I think it was about four years later at a meeting. He came up, and he says, Carol, you know, we really should do a joint study together. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> so your your research held up. My research totally held up, and it shifted things. It really did. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, um, Dunbar and Dunbar, two big primatologists at I think it's Cambridge, anyway, England, one of the big England thing. Um, it, I ended up teaching at this tiny little college in eastern Washington. And the librarian came to me one day running with um, the journal, I think it was in Behavior, um, which is Animal Behavior. And it was Dunbar and Dunbar test Macmillan's hypothesis of such and such. So he gave it out to 52 species that he had his graduate students test part of what I was saying. And, and, um, and he came out with just slightly different results. It depends on the size of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, how much but um, anyway it was very gratifying (laughs) so after you came back from this island and studying the monkeys where did you go from there where did I go from there Um, I moved to I met my second husband and he had 40 acres in eastern Washington and it was 1982 and it was the last huge recession and there were no jobs, no jobs after I finished my PhD. And he said, well, come out and let's live on my land in Washington, 40 acres. So I said, why not? And so I went out and we had a 12 by 16 cabin. And I loved it. I loved, again, back to the nature and back to living in the mountains of eastern Washington. I loved it. And he said, well, we can build a house. And I said, no, God builds houses. Humans don't build houses. And he said, sure, we can. And so we did. It took us a long time. And actually, he and I then split up. Wonderful man. And I will not say anything bad about Bill. Um, But I ended up buying. He didn't want to stay. And so he went back to New York, which is where I met him, which is where he was from. But he'd been out in Washington. Anyway, um, but I found this little community college down 40 miles in the town of Omak. And um, I started teaching part-time for them. And then a couple of years, they offered me a full-time tenure-track position. At the same time, a um, four-year university that had a branch in the town offered me the deanship. And, uh, but it was iffy, and I didn't know. I loved teaching. And so I called my dad, and I said, okay, I want some fatherly advice. And he almost dropped the phone. He said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> and he had been a research chemist that then became really high in management and shell chemical. And I said, um, this is the situation, and blah, blah, blah. And he said, do you like teaching? And I said, I love it. And he said, are you a good teacher? And I said, I am. I'm a very good teacher. And he said, do you need the extra money? And I said, no, I don't. He said, then why would you take the deanship? And I... I could not be happier that I chose what I chose. It was just a great career. Well, it sounds like we could probably go on for hours, but we only have a few more minutes here. (laughs) So I'm wondering, is there a way to quickly make the trip from where you were in, was it Oregon or Washington Washington. at this, Washington Mm -hmm. to Hawaii? Well, um, I taught for 30 years at this little school, and it was just 
totally different cultures in that little school. There were um, the fruit workers, a lot of Latinos were up because it's a big fruit area. It was right beside the Colville Reservation, so there were um, 12 tribes that were put by the government on the reservation. And um, a huge hippie back to the land people that came up in end of the 60s and where he up in. So it's just fascinating as an anthropologist. Fascinating that the people were all older students and they were just dying to have an education. All of them were so happy to have a university or a college there. And then the college gave me to the tribe to start help them with starting their own language and cultural preservation program. So I ended up working for the last, I don't know, 15 years. But I'd already become really close to a lot of tribal members by then. And again, loving, loving Indian humor. I mean, it's just so much fun. And I learned so much in working with, I mean, anyway, um, it was fabulous. And it was the greatest thing. But eventually I got old and I retired and another recession happened and the, the college offered to buy me out. And I thought they're never going to offer to buy me out if I'd retire. So I did. And I moved to Bellingham and... Um, it was great. I learned a lot. I wrote and wrote, and I was in a great critique group that taught me how to write really well. I'd published, you know, interlinear genetic differentiation between rhesus macaques, but not anybody's going to read that. So I knew how, and I'd written poetry my whole life. So I'd had academic writing and poetry, but narrative prose. I didn't know how much there is to writing narrative prose, but two years of intensives from Laura Kalpakian, wonderful author and a wonderful group of serious writers. But I've always loved Hawaii. I came here first before it was a state. My first plane flight ever was between Oahu and Kauai, and it's just always been home. And so at age 75, I left everything and everybody behind, and I moved to this island. <laughs> wow. And, and a bit of a challenge, because I moved March 4th, and everything oh, shut down God. on March the 16th. So how do you make new friends? How do you meet people? How do you? And luckily, the Hawaiian Writers Guild, I had, I had joined them before, and bless their hearts, you know, like, now we Zoom, but I had met them before, so... I didn't feel like I had absolutely nobody. But I'll tell you, those first two months were probably about the biggest challenge of my life, mm. just mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. I know what isolation feels like. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and for someone who likes to explore and sounds like likes to be with people, that's 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 hard. That's hard. It yeah. is. Yeah. I call myself an extroverted hermit. I am a hermit, mm-hmm. but I love people. And I, mm-hmm. well, you can. I babble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My sister said, "If I can say it, I love this." I quote her all the time. When I said I was going to retire, she says, "Oh no, you can't retire. You won't have a captive audience, and you'll drive <laughs> us all crazy." <laughs> well, we have been delighted to have you here as our guest. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Hawaii, and. Thank you for your stories. I'm sure we may have to have you come back again. I I think we've just touched the surface. Well, thank you so much. It's really fun to be here. It's fun meeting you, too. Um, More humans on Hawaii. (laughs) You've been listening to Carol McMillan here on Tutu's Talk Story. I'm your host, Holly Allgood, here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Aloha.